Turn to Exodus 20. We're going to continue our studies in the law and their relationship to the covenant. I'm sure all of you have heard the story of the man who was on his way home from uh, his own wedding, had his young bride with him in the uh, buggy, and they came to a bridge and the horse shied. The man got out of the buggy and uh, looked the horse right in the eyes and said, that's one. He got back in the buggy and continued on home. A bit later, the horse came to another bridge and shied, and the man got a two-before out of the back of the buggy and whacked the horse right over the head, and his wife his new bride just went right through the ceiling. She was irate, began to berate him for his treatment of the poor dumb animal. And he looked her right in the eyes and he said, that's one. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people feel about the law. We, uh, God gives us a list of impossible things to do. And when we fail once, God says, all right, that's one. And the next time uh, you're going to feel my wrath. But uh, I think you've seen from our study that that's far from the truth. The law is a gracious provision. It comes, as Paul says, after the law. It does not precede the law. It's not the basis upon which Israel was accepted by God. They were already a holy people. The law was simply the way that God gave to live out that holiness in the world. It was essentially a description of what it means to be a loving people. It's God's intent that his people be characterized by love. And this is, this is what love means. William Morris once wrote a poem uh, entitled Love is Enough, and C.S. Lewis reviewed it in two words. It isn't. It's not enough. It's not enough just to say to people, love someone, because we don't, we don't know what love is like. We don't understand the nature of love. As Lewis went on to explain in his, uh, in his review, natural love is like a garden. It has to be trimmed and pruned and tended, otherwise it turns into a tangle. We don't have the foggiest idea what it means to love someone. If God simply gave us that general command, go out and be loving, we'd miss the mark every time. We need to know how to love people. And essentially, that's what the Ten Commandments were to Israel. It was a, a definition of, uh, of love. Now, last week we talked about the first commandment. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment prescribes monolatry, the worship of one God, an exclusive worship. The expression before me, as I think I mentioned last week, is used, used elsewhere in the Old Testament where the law says that a man is not to have a wife while his his ex-wife or other wife is before him. In other words, it's to be an exclusive relationship. One man and one woman together for life. And that's what God is saying. I want to be your God. I want to love you. Because that's where you're going to find satisfaction. This law is really a provision of God's love because God knows that we will never find satisfaction apart from a relationship with him. Period. We will never find it. As Augustine said in the preamble to his confessions, O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We can frantically pursue satisfaction in any number of endeavors, but we will never, ever find it apart from God in an exclusive relationship with him. The second command, as we said, parallels it. It's really the other side of the of the issue, you shall have no other gods, and you shall not make for yourself 
an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So they weren't to worship idols. The first commandment prescribes monolatry. The second commandment proscribes or prohibits idolatry. Don't worship something that represents God. Our English word idol comes from a Greek word whose root is a verb in Greek that means to see. So idolatry is the worship of something that's seen. And it's a warning against our tendency to trust in tangible assets, something we can see, money, position, property, a car. That's what the ad industry tells us. You buy the right kind of car and a pretty lady will come sit beside you and you'll be happy for life. There's certainly nothing wrong with buying cars. There's nothing wrong with buying clothes. There's nothing wrong with homes. They're all necessary, absolutely necessary. But we all know that in and of themselves, they will never, ever satisfy us. Period. <laughs> There's just no other option, no other way of looking at, at life. It's interesting to uh, see in the Old Testament how the prophets treated idols. They took idolatry very seriously. But they joked about idols. They poked fun at them. In Isaiah 41, Isaiah says, uh, you folks who worship idols, says the, uh, the smelter encourages the man who flattens out the metal. And that man flattens out the person who nails it to the, uh, to the idol. And all of you encourage the man who nails the idol to the floor. And you say to him, be strong, so the idol will not totter. Now that's, that's what's so ludicrous about it. Idol worship. Man has to nail it to the floor so that it won't fall over, and yet, yet we think that thing somehow is going to satisfy us. The, uh, one of the favorite terms in the Old Testament for idols is the Hebrew word gilul. It comes from a root that means to roll something up into a little ball. And most scholars are agreed that, that the word really means balls of dung. That's the way they looked at idols. They were like rabbit droppings. That's the idea. Silly, ridiculous, absurd things to worship. In Psalm 115, the, uh, the psalmist says, uh, They have ears, but they do not hear. They have mouths, but they do not speak. The word that he uses there is a Hebrew word for articulate speech. They can't form words. They can't say anything intelligible. They have eyes. They cannot see. Noses. They cannot smell. Hands. They cannot feel. Feet. They cannot walk. Throats but they cannot make any sounds. In other words, they, not only can they not speak, they can't, even, they can't make any sounds at all. They can't grunt, they can't croak, they can't whistle, they can't hum, they can't do anything. They just stand there and look at you. He says, those who make them will be like them. It's very interesting. And the point is, they will be impotent like the idols. They will have no more power than the idol has. And the, the, the point that the writers make over and over again is that idolatry is just plain dumb. That's all. It's foolish. It's stupid. You spend all of your life looking for satisfaction in something you can see. You'll never find it there. I have a good friend who told me a number of years ago that uh, all of his life he wanted to buy a particular piece of property in the backcountry ranch. Worked himself half to death to make enough money to buy that piece of property. And so he finally bought it. And he flew into the place got out of the airplane, stepped on the ground that he now possessed. He said the whole thing just turned into ashes in his hands. He didn't want any of it. That's the trouble with putting our trust in something that's seen, some tangible, visible asset other than God. It doesn't work. 
That's why God says, don't make idols. It doesn't work. It doesn't pay off. It won't make you happy. It won't satisfy you. You'll work your fingers to the bone. You'll have a coronary. You'll destroy your family. And it's all for nothing. It's a waste of time. Don't do it, he says. It's crazy. Craziness to worship idols. The uh, third commandment is in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. In the ancient world, a man's name represented what he was, and the word for vain here simply means empty. And literally the command is don't... Where went that button again? I can't believe it. That's the third time it's happened to me while I'm up here preaching. Literally, the command is don't lift up God's name in some empty or vain, inconsequential way. Don't be lighthearted about God. Prohibition of profanity, as we would call it today, or taking an oath lightly under, under law, an oath in a court of law, when you don't intend to keep your word. In the Old Testament, it referred to marriage vows. Those were covenants taken before God. And uh, to look for the back door is a violation of that, uh, of that basic agreement that you made in, in God's name. In the New Testament, the law is given a little different twist. It's stated positively in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. In other words, your, your name ought to be distinctive or different or made sacred or held as something high and holy by God's people. And essentially it means the same thing to us as it did to Israel. Don't take up God's name in some light and frivolous way. Don't use his name in profanity. Our Lord's name, God's name, are not to be used in that way. If we take an oath in the name of God, it means something significant. Don't take that oath lightly without meaning it. It really applies to any frivolous use or light use of God's name. Sort of thing we do sometimes when we say, God told me to do so and so, and we know good and well God didn't tell us to do that. It's just a way of excusing our actions. I, I remember once when I was a much younger Christian being in a, a group of Christian leaders, and we were trying to work through some problem, and there was an older man there who was trying to impose his will on the whole group, and none of us felt that it was God's will for us to do the thing that he, was, he, he wanted to do. And finally, he... Uh, pulled out his big guns he said I've been praying about this thing for months and this morning at three o'clock in the morning I was awakened by the spirit of God and God spoke to me and this was the thing that he said to do and interestingly enough the thing that he said to do was the thing that coincided with this man's will that he was trying to impose upon us and everybody went wow and uh, we did what he uh, what he wanted to do. I remember thinking at the time, what was I doing at 3 o'clock this morning? I was in the sack. How carnal can you get? This guy was up talking to God at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was between the sheets. But I realized later in thinking back on it, he conned us. He conned us. It's not God's will at all. He was using God's name in a, in a vain and, and light way. The fourth commandment in verse 8 is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Make it different. It's not work as usual on the Sabbath day. He says make it holy or distinctive or different. I mentioned before this is not a new law for Israel. 
wasn't a new law for the world. The idea of the Sabbath is rooted in creation, and it was known all over the ancient Near Eastern world. The Babylonians had little circles around their, the seventh day on their calendar. It was a bad day for work. It was unlucky for them. So it's an idea that goes way back. And in Exodus 16, there's a reference to the Sabbath law there with, with respect to gathering manna. So it was well known. We need to keep in mind that the Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. It was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And when you turn to the New Testament, there's an interesting thing that the apostles, the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament do. In the first place, they didn't worship on the Sabbath. They worshiped on Sunday, not the seventh day of the week, but the first day of the week, Sunday morning. There are a couple of references in Acts and one that Paul makes to the fact that the early church met on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. That's when they, when they worship. An interesting, another interesting statement made by the New Testament writers is that it doesn't really matter what day you worship. Interesting? For example, turn to Colossians 2. Colossians 2.16. <clears throat> you women that are in the studies know this passage well. Therefore, let no one, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, that is the dietary uh, laws under the Old Covenant, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let anyone judge you with respect to the Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Sabbath law in the Old Testament foreshadowed some greater spiritual reality in the New Testament. It was a sign from the very beginning. In Exodus 31, verse 16, Moses says, uh, The Sabbath is to be a sign to you. It was a sign like circumcision, which was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, or the rainbow, which is a sign of, of God's covenant with Noah that he wouldn't flood the, the world again. It was a symbol of some greater, deeper spiritual reality. And even in the Old Testament, the Sabbath law was, was intended to be not the reality, but the shadow of the reality. So Paul says, you know, it's, it's just, it's a ritual, it's a symbol. So don't let anybody judge you in this matter, because the reality has come now. And our question is, what, what is the reality? Is it worshiping on Sunday morning? Or three o'clock in the morning? Well, Hebrews tells us, if you turn to Hebrews 4... The author of Hebrews is describing what he calls the rest, which he says is not exhausted by the Sabbath regulation, the fourth commandment, or by the uh, conquest of Canaan, which is another form of rest. Both of those, he says, were symbolic of another rest. And in verse 9, Hebrews 4, 9, he says, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, here is what the Sabbath is for us today. The one who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. And as you read through Hebrews, you know exactly what that rest is. It's the rest of faith. It's believing in Christ. It's coming to him and letting him bear the yoke. It's the rest of trust and belief in our Lord Jesus. 
So if somebody asks you today if you, uh, if you keep the Sabbath, tell them, yes, I do. Seven days a week, 365 days out of the year, I keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath, or the Shabbat, as Hebrews would say, is fulfilled in, in, in our rest in Christ today. And you see, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's spiritualized, that's modified in any form. All the others, the, the apostles simply restate the commandment as it appears almost exactly in, in the law. But in this case, it's, it's changed, it's modified, it's spiritualized because it was never intended to be the reality. It was the symbol of a greater reality. Now, there probably ought to be one day that we set aside Sunday's as good as any because in our culture we've already set that aside as a day of worship and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But I can't judge you if you worship on Friday morning or Thursday night or Tuesday afternoon or any other day because every other day is like any other day. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we understand the reality of this thing which is the ongoing, never-ending rest of faith. The Sabbath that you and I enjoy because God is at work for us. He's doing it all for us. The whole thing depends on him. We just need to trust it. The fifth commandment, back in Exodus 20, is honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Paul says in Ephesians 6, that's the first commandment with a promise has to do with their continuation in the land. And as someone has said, Life was much better when we honored mother and father instead of every major credit card. The, uh, the word honor means to treat with respect, to give weight to. And the continuance of the nation was, was uh, determined by their obedience to this command. The reason being that if we don't obey this command, we don't learn from our, from our forefathers. You spend your whole life gathering uh, a lot of experience about life, and then you want to teach that to your kids, and they don't want to listen. They want to learn it all over again, learn it the hard way. That's what creates a declining society. Every generation loses out because they don't listen to the generation that preceded them. They don't honor mother and father. They want to do it all by themselves. You know, what a loss. Mark Twain said that when he was living at home, he thought his father was the most ignorant man he'd ever met in his life, and he went off to school. When he came back, he was amazed at how much the old man had learned. <laughs> now, this command is restated in the New Testament exactly as you have it here. It's quoted in Ephesians 6. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Besides that, Paul says it's, just, it's good. It's the right thing to do. It'll make life a lot easier for you if you do. Now, I don't know when a child ceases to be a child. That's where Scripture is, is not specific. Some would say when they get married, for myself, I don't think so. I think a child ceases to be a child when they leave home, when you're on your own. But as long as we're children in, in the house, we are to obey our parents, even if they're corny and out of it and weird doesn't make any difference. We're to obey them and respect them. If they ask us to do something contrary to the will of God, that, that's another matter. But that's not, that's not likely to occur. That's not really where our problems arise. As long as we're at home, we need to obey them. And as long as they're our parents, we need to honor them. Keep up with them. Contact them. Write them. Call them. 
Inform them about the progress of their grandchildren. Send them pictures. Call them for counsel and help. Learn from them. I'm always amazed at how much my father has learned since I left home. The sixth commandment, verse 13, you shall not murder. Hebrew word means to uh, take life criminally. Illegal murder, illegal killing. The law distinguished between uh, premeditated murder and manslaughter or accidental killing. In chapter 22 of Exodus, you'd find that distinction made. The law also provided for capital offenses, death penalty. The death penalty was very much a part of of Israel's law. Now, they didn't have any jails in Israel. I don't know if you know that or not. They didn't imprison anyone. You either made restitution or they took your life. It's really a very fair system when you think about it. They believed in the death penalty. Just across the page in verse 12 of chapter 21, we're told that he who strikes a man so that he dies should surely be put to death. So the death penalty was in effect in Israel. And I, I really think that those who advocate the repeal of the, of the death penalty today, despite what they say, do not highly regard human life. The argument is always that in our enlightened culture, because we regard human life, we value human life so highly, then we need to repeal the death penalty. But when they do so, what they establish is that a human life is worth X number of years in prison, seven or eight years with good behavior. That's all a life is worth. But Scripture establishes that a life is worth a life. It goes all the way back to the time of Noah. God said, if a man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's an inviolable principle. And if we highly regard human life, we'll, we'll take it seriously. And as God's people, will not murder. That's clearly stated in the New Testament in exactly this form. We'll not take life. We'll not take another's life. We'll not take our own life. And we'll not take the life of unborn children. For the life of me, I cannot distinguish between the six million Jews who choked to death in Hitler's gas chambers and the nine million children that we killed in the 70s. I can't make that distinction. If we're holy people, we'll not take life, period. Now, Jesus, again, adds an interesting twist to this. He says, it's said in the, in the law, you shall not murder. I say to you that if you call your... If you hate your brother or you call him a fool or raka, you might as well murder him. The, the Aramaic word raka means knucklehead, literally. It really does. It's the sort of thing that easily flies out of our mouth when our neighbor's dog dumps the trash can over that idiot neighbor of ours. And that's, that's the sort of thing Jesus is talking about. It devalues human life. Degrades another human being. James says, how in the world can you in one breath Bless God, and in the next breath, breath, curse a man who is made in the image of God. That's, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, Jesus says in the same context, if you, if, if you go to serve God in some way and you have something against your brother, go first and be reconciled to your brother. And in other words, the, we fulfill the command today not merely in not taking life, but in positively trying to build up another and to upgrade the quality of, of human life in the world what love does. Seventh commandment is you should not commit adultery. I think that's clear. Adultery is sexual intercourse with someone else's wife or husband. The law in the Old Testament takes a different approach to fornication, which is the general word to uh, aberrant sexual activity. 
The sentence for uh, fornication was, was a life sentence. You had to marry the girl. And since you were married for life, it was a life sentence. But uh, adultery was another thing. It was, it was a capital offense and your life was taken because no one has the right to take away another man's wife or husband. The uh, sixth commandment protects his life. The seventh commandment protects his wife or her husband. No one has that right. Now again, uh, the New Testament gives us another turn. Jesus says, it's not enough merely to not commit adultery. He says, if you even look after a woman to lust after her, it's the same thing as, as the act. Because our Lord knows that that what we think is what we do. And someone has said our, our predominant thought becomes our immediate action. Thoughts just work their way out into life. And if, if we fantasize about sexual things, that's, that's what will happen. As I've said before, failure in this area is not, a, is not a blowout. It's a slow leak. Nobody just suddenly collapses morally. They, they usually have fantasized over a long period of time. They've committed adultery in their mind with someone else's wife or husband. And it makes it much easier then to act. So the Lord says, deal harshly with your thoughts. And not only that, deal harshly with the things that stimulate the thoughts. He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And I'm thinking literally, speaking symbolically, of those things that stir up the thoughts. What comes in through our eyes, what we touch, those are the things that, that we, need to, we need to get tough with ourselves in those areas. Stay away from bad literature, from pornographic movies. From bad companions who stir us up to sensual thoughts. There's a great deal of freedom in avoiding all of these things, not flirting, not doing anything that will keep us from being a one-woman man or a one-man woman. Exclusive sex, exclusive love. See, that's that's the point of this of this command. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And that is, you're not to take someone else's property. We ought to pay our debts, or if we can't pay our debts, at least let people know that we want to and we will at the first opportunity. We ought to respect one another's property and replace it if it's lost or damaged. We need to give our employers an honest day's work. If we're employers, we need to pay decent wages. That's one way to fight, fight poverty when you think about it. The New Testament Again, gives us a positive turn. Not only shall you not steal, but you shall labor with your own hands so you have something to give. Don't take. Give. The ninth commandment is in verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The law protects his life, protects the sanctity of the home, protects his property, and it protects his reputation. You know what false witness is? It's gossip. That's all it is. It's gossip. That's what C.S. Lewis called the warm-hearted sin of the church. Pardon me, the cold-hearted sin of the church. That's the one we tend to get away with. We're highly judgmental of those who commit adultery or who steal, but but we refuse to sit in judgment on ourselves when we gossip. It's wrong. Jesus said Satan is the one who tries to destroy by gossip, by words. He's the maligner. He's a liar and a murderer. He deceives, and, he, and by his deception, he destroys 
the reputation of others, and we must not be aligned with him. We must not gossip, and we must not listen to gossip from others. If someone gossips to you about a member of the family or anyone else, you need to say to them, are you sure? Have you talked to that person? Because that's the way we go about solving those problems within the church. We don't talk to somebody else. We go to the person who is offending. If we hear that someone has sinned or we see them sin, we need to go to them, not to anyone, any other person, and try to build them up and encourage them. But it's wrong to bear false witness, to gossip about someone else. It's wrong. It's terribly destructive. And then finally, in, in verse 17, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There's a kind of a mystique about somebody else's possessions. I don't know what it is, but there are a lot of things I never had any desire whatever to possess until I saw that somebody else had it, and then I wanted it. And it struck me one day that that's really what the ad industry is all about. What they're trying to do is to show some possession in somebody else's hands so that it, I suddenly want it. They're playing to my greed, but essentially it's, a, it's an appeal to that desire that I have to possess something that belongs to somebody else, and, and we all succumb to it. That's what Peter calls fleshly lusts, fleshly desires, that wage war with our souls, that just create tremendous conflict within us because we want something that we don't have. That's what John calls the lust of the flesh, and the desire for other things. And basically, it's, a, it's an unwillingness to be content with what God has given to us. I hope you know by now that, that we are not created equal. You know that? If we understand that to mean that we're all equal in God's eyes in terms of his love for us, yes. But in terms of personality, intelligence, appearance, social standing, we are not created equal. There are people that are smarter than we are, better looking than we are. They have more energy than we have. They start life way ahead of us. And as uh, John F. Kennedy observed so astutely, life is not fair. And when we see someone who has something we don't have, a better home, a better car, they're more intelligent, they're farther ahead in the company, our tendency is to get upset and to covet what they have. And basically what that is is dissatisfaction with what God has given to us. Paul says, I have learned to be content with what I have, nothing more and nothing less. Because what God has, has given you, is God's will for you and for me. And we need to settle down and be thankful for what we have. And not covet what somebody else has, because God in his wisdom has put this in the law, because this is what causes all the other problems. If we want something other than God, we will not pursue God with all of our heart. If we want somebody else's wife, we will commit adultery. If we want their property, we will steal. If we want their position in the company, we will steal their reputation. And that's what creates all the problems. And Paul says, that's the one that killed me. That one put me to death. When I, when I read the law, I thought I had all of them down until I came to the Tenth Commandment. And, the, and that one came home to me, and I realized that I had all sorts of unrestrained desires, and it killed me. It put me to, to death, and that's what eventually drove him to the grace of, of God. One other passage. Turn to uh, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1. Verse 5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love. 
from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, uh, Paul says the purpose of all apostolic teaching is to make to make us more loving. That's what it's all for. The purpose of a gathering like this is not to fill your head with information. The purpose of the church is not to build buildings. They're simply a means to the end. The purpose of the church is not to study the Bible. That's simply a means to the end. The purpose of our gathering is so that we can walk out that door into the world and be a more loving people. That's the goal. And that's the end of it all. But some, he says, have strayed from this. Verse 6, some men... Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discourse. They've lost their bearings. They're up to no good. They're not producing something that's worthwhile. Their discussion is, is empty. But he says they're not. They're not discoursing on some pagan secular literature. They're talking about God's word. They're studying God's word. But they're doing it in a fruitless, empty way. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law. And, and, the, and the NASB is right in capitalizing law. He's talking about the law of Moses. Or the law of Moses as it's translated into the, into the New Testament principles of life. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that a law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless. I spent a lot of time trying to figure this passage out because it seems to run counter to what Paul says in other places. I'd always thought that Paul was saying the law is not for Christians. That's what he meant by righteous, those who have been justified. And sometimes Paul does use that term that way. In other words, uh, he was saying, well, the law is not for us. We don't need the law. We have something else to operate on. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's using righteousness in an ironic sense here. He's talking about those who don't seem to need anything, who have it all together. Those who study the law as if it had no application to them. That's his point. They think they're righteous. They don't need to apply the truth. Now, they'd never say that. But in effect, that's exactly what what happens because they study the law, they study the scriptures, but they never apply them. Paul says the, the law is not for the righteous, but for the lawless. That's that's us folks. The immoral. People that have a hard time making it, that are struggling, that don't always hit the mark. And if you'll notice, what Paul does is go through the Ten Commandments. And he states violations of the Ten Commandments in the, in the most, in the most uh, I don't know what the word would be, the most gross possible misapplication of the law. He says the law is for the lawless and the rebellious, those who violate the first two commandments. The ungodly and sinners, the irreligious, those that have no use for God or who struggle with being indifferent to God. For the unholy and profane, those who are inclined to use God's name in vain and and profane it. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, I can't think of of a greater violation of the command, honor mother and father. For murderers, those who violate the sixth commandment, you shall not commit, you shall not murder. And immoral men and homosexuals, those who violate the seventh commandment. For kidnappers, the eighth commandment, those who steal men and children. And liars, those who violate the ninth commandment. And perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. 
What he's saying is that the law is a good and rightful purpose as it's understood in the New Testament, not as a precondition to God's acceptance, but as a result of the covenant relationship that, that we have with God and uh, empowered by his indwelling presence as we read the scriptures, the revelation of God's will as we have it in the New, New, New Testament, the moral law, the Ten Commandments as they're interpreted in the light of, of the New Testament. We are to permit the word to change us. That's what he's saying. His goal is to make us more loving. And to be unloving, if we violate any of these Ten Commandments, we're going to be unloving. He wants to change us. So the law is for us, just as it was for Israel. But again, it needs to be understood, not as a, as a precondition to God's love. He, he loves us as we are. What he wants to do is take us on to the place where he wants us to be. And he uses the word and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to change us. As we read the word, we're empowered to act upon it. And the result is fruitful behavior. Fruitful Bible study. Now we can, we can study the Bible endlessly and miss the point of it all. We can be involved in the women's studies and the men's study and Bible study fellowship and growth groups and all sorts of things and miss the whole point unless we see what Paul is driving at. Bible study is not an end in itself. The study of the law is not an end in itself. It's intended to change us as we submit our will to the Christ who indwells us. And he makes it possible for us to respond in obedience. As Jesus put it, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Those who are trying to do better, those who are struggling to be righteous, those who are trying to deal with their, their thought life, the sexual fantasies in their mind, those who struggle with stealing time or money from your employer, those who struggle with a, with a mouth that's un, uncontrolled. Jesus says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be taught, be discipled by him. Because I'm gentle, he's not harsh. And I'm humble, he understands, he's been there, he's struggled with sin as we have. And he says, I will give rest to your souls. It changes. Carolyn and I have gone through um, the uh, bittersweet process of buying homes a number of times in our married life and uh, invariably, as we walk through homes, one will strike us as one that we would like to buy, and Carolyn will say, well, I, I think I'll, uh, what I'd like to do is put levelers on those windows and, and uh, wallpaper that wall and change this and that. She starts redecorating the house because she knows that that's only in her mind. She can't touch that house until it's in our hands, until it's, in our, it's our possession. And the same is true with God. You can try to keep the law to your dying day and you will never impress God because you can't do it I can't do it and even if you could it wouldn't be impressive to God because that's not what he wants what he wants is for us to put ourselves into his hands to become his possession to believe him to trust him to stop counting on ourselves and our way of salvation and rest in him and then he can begin to renovate us by means of his spirit through the word he can begin to conform us to his moral law. Let's pray. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, you know our hearts. You know how, how much we want to love you with all of our heart, 
and our soul and our strength and our mind. And yet you know how divided we are, how, how much we're pulled by the world around us, how often our thoughts go, go astray. We ask that you would give us one heart to serve you. And you know our desire to be faithful to our wives and to our husbands. And again, we well know how all of secular society conspires against the sanctity of the home and we're tempted on every hand. We ask that you would deliver us from temptation and purify our thoughts and our hearts. You know how tempted we are to take things that belong to others or to talk about others or to desire their station in life or their gifts or their abilities or whatever it may be that they have that we want. We pray that you would make us satisfied people complete in you. We know that this this only comes as you produce it. It's only because we're yours that we can behave like a holy people. We want to be holy because you're holy. We know our weakness, but we thank you for your strength that makes everything possible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.